you know, if you're trying to time your investments in financial securities um, through this period, um, it is extremely difficult. I mean, actually, what you should do is you see the danger and you think, well, this is actually getting quite close. We don't know whether it's going to be in the next month, next two months, next quarter, maybe the next half year. But it's getting increasingly unlikely that it's going to be much beyond that. So actually, what you should do is sell everything and go off on a world cruise. But, you know, that's not the way the world works. Mm-hmm. You know? And particularly for professional investment managers who are left holding the can through this for their clients. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's going to be, I think, extremely difficult for them. There is an answer um, for investors, um, and that is to protect their capital. Just just take as much as you think is sensible out of the credit system, because the whole of the financial system is a credit system. And it's the credit system that we're talking about potentially collapsing. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. While much debate currently centers around whether the dollar will weaken further or resume the dominance it displayed last year, Today's guest is more concerned about how much longer it has left as the preeminent currency in the world. But at an even higher level, when Alistair McLeod, head of research for Gold Money, was on this program last, he made a dire prediction that all of the world's major fiat currencies were in the process of failing, far faster than many are imagining. He returns to the program today to update us on the latest details and timing of his outlook. Alistair, thank you so much for joining us, especially late your time in the UK. Well, yeah. Anyway, it's nice to be with you, Adam. It's a good oh, time. It's always here. a pleasure, Alistair. I, I was surprised when I looked at the calendar and realized it's been half a year since we last had you on the channel. We can't have that much time go by before your next one. Um, but very good to see you again. Lots to talk about here with you. Uh, right as we Right before we get into the details, though, let me just ask the general question I'd like to ask you every time you're on the channel, just to set the context here for our viewers. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Well, it's bifurcated into two sections. And um, on the one side, we have got the uh, economy that which we all follow, the American, the European, um, the Japanese, and so on. And on the other side, we've got the economy we don't follow, which is the Asian, Asian hegemons, uh, Russia, China, and a growing BRICS uh, tribe. Um, and it would appear that that tribe will increase quite materially um, uh, after the meeting in Johannesburg uh, on the 22nd to the 24th of August. So the world is split into two halves. And um, we can see from the slowdown of um, uh, money supply, that uh, there is a credit crunch, as it were, um, arriving in the first half, the one which we're familiar with, uh, America, Europe, etc. cetera. Uh, and um, that credit crunch is gonna get worse because uh, banks are now seeing that there is significant risk in lending. I'll give you an example. Um, we have had um, a severe crisis developing in our uh, water utilities uh, in England. Uh, Thames Water, which is the largest of the water utilities, was uh, taken over by um, uh, a private equity um, uh, fund quite some time ago. And of course, it did what private equity funds always did. It leveraged up its investment 
by basically saddling Thames Water, a utility with a stable income stream, saddled it up with debt so that um, you know the sort of 8% return, which is the sort of level that the regulator permits, suddenly becomes 40%. You know, what's not to like? But this was done at low interest rates. And of course, they now need refinancing. And refinancing is difficult because interest rates have literally shot up. And if you look at the yield on the 10-year gilt, I mean, it's gone up from sort of pretty close to zero. And uh, as we speak, it's just broken above four and a half percent. And it's done that in a matter of uh, almost a year, just a, uh, slightly more than a year, I suppose, about 13 months. That is a major problem for all leveraged businesses. And banks know this. So they have got a problem. Do they want to lend more money to these leveraged businesses with an uncertain interest rate outlook? Or do they want to just step back and say, you know, go elsewhere? I think the answer is quite simple. We have got a credit crisis coming. We're going to have a shortage of credit when demand for credit, demand for refinancing, mortgage field as well is another prime example, um, you know, is just escalating. So I think we are on the verge of a crisis. Now, what we need to do is to hope that um, uh, inflation comes down very rapidly. Now, that won't cure the credit crisis, but at least the background will be slightly better than what we have at the moment. Is that going to happen? Well, here we have a problem because um, we, you know, the, the Ukraine situation um, is deteriorating. The Ukrainians have launched their summer offensive and it's got absolutely nowhere. Um, Putin has put down a, a supposed rebellion um, by the Wagner group uh, and uh, become come out of it a lot stronger as a result by every analysis that I've seen anyway. And on that basis, I would expect the Russians to have another assault on Ukraine. And this time, my personal view is that they will probably take out Kiev. Now, if that's the case, we've got a real problem because we're, we're in a war which NATO cannot afford to lose nor can Russia afford to lose. So how serious is this escalation going to get? And remember that when Russia first um, uh, invaded the eastern provinces of Ukraine and also tried to take over Kyiv, um, sanctions uh, introduced by the West drove up commodity and energy prices to, you know, I mean, just through the roof. Um, I think WTI, uh, WTI oil got as far as $140. It's half that now. Um, but you can see the potential for uh, the escalation of uh, the Ukraine situation to drive up commodity prices and make us abandon all hope of lower commodity prices, lower inflation, whatever. But I would um, emphasize that the credit crisis is a problem on top of it. It is not dependent on this situation. So this is going to be very tricky times. Um, and uh, we're already seeing bond yields rising again. I mean, as I said earlier, I can see that the 10-year, I'm looking at my screen, the 10-year uh, US gilt is now le leading, sorry, yielding just over 4.5% which is um, the highest it's been since the um, Lehman crisis. So this is, this is a serious situation. I do not see much hope for financial asset values. Uh, we know that equity markets have become incredibly distorted by, I mean, particularly in America, the fangs, you know, the, the, the um, uh, tech stocks. 
Um, if you take tech stocks out of the S&P, the S&P is pretty disappointing, to, to say the least. So, you know, this is the situation we face. Now, that's one half of it. The other half of it, of course, is China and Russia. I mean, they must be laughing all the way to the bank over our difficulties and trying to resist to make it even worse for us. Um, they have a plan and, uh, you know, we'll see whether it works. But basically, the plan is to um, uh, engender an industrial revolution throughout Asia. Uh, and uh, we're talking about uh, the benefits, all told, also for the suppliers to these two hegemons of uh, roughly four and a half, four point eight billion people against our lot. How many are we? One point three billion. BRICS, um, which incorporates, I mean, on the expanded basis, it will incorporate um, quite a lot of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, members, associates, and dialogue partners. Um, leaving, I think, merely the Central Asian states out of out of BRICS. So you're going to see this lot coming together very, very seriously in August. And that is one third of global GDP, and it's 64% of the world's population. So I'm afraid, Adam, we are a small minority player in this, and we have got some enormous challenges. If we fail to win the war in Ukraine, and assuming we don't escalate it into a nuclear war, then we are toast. This is a, this is a real problem for us. So, I mean, where's the best place to live? Believe it or not, probably Russia, <laughs> because tax there is 13%, flat rate income tax, corporation tax is 20%. By and large, if you don't get involved with politics, they leave you alone and you can do business. Can we do that in our regulated entities? We are at an enormous disadvantage to um, the, the Eastern he uh, hegemons uh, controlling Asia. So anyway, that's a sort of brief overview of the whole situation. <laughs> I'm sure it can be taken. <laughs> okay. Blur. Boy, I got to uh, I, I got to then close the oven here. I was about to stick my head into uh, so I can ask you these <laughs> remaining questions here. Um, all right. So <clears throat> we have a very bifurcated world. It's really Team West and Japan versus uh, Team Asia slash BRICS. Um, I have interviewed a, a number of people who uh, think similarly to you, both about the, the bipolarization of what's going on geopolitically, but also that China is looking to invest a lot more in the Asia Pacific region in creating a, a more sustainable consumer-based economy there so it's less dependent up, upon Team West. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, for better or worse, your outlook is shared by others that come on this channel. Um, all right, uh, lots to dig into there. And of course, I want to get into uh, the world of currencies with you because you write about that uh, all the time with your role there at Gold Money. Um, let me just ask a couple of clarifying questions first, though, just for my own curiosity. Uh, it sounds like, from at least for the Western players here, um, and most of our viewers here are from the West, not all, but but a lot of them are. Um, I, I look at what you're sort of predicting, this credit crunch, which obviously is contractionary uh, to economic growth, uh, the potential for commodities to start becoming more uh, scarce and more expensive, especially if things continue to escalate uh, in Ukraine. Um, and so, you know, I'm putting aside how bad things could get if the, the war really escalates, and let's hope it doesn't. Um, but when I kind of connect the dots that you were putting out there, I, I was sort of hearing stagflation. Um, do you sort of predict stagflation for the West here? 
Yes, um, inevitably that is the case. And I think the best way to understand it is uh, to point out that um, in every fiat currency collapse, um, you know, it, it's been stagflation in the sense that um, when you get an economic collapse, um, obviously the economy goes downhill very rapidly in terms of its real output. Um, but um, GDP might appear to rise. Why? Because the purchasing power of the currency you're measuring in it in is collapsing. And um, so that, I think, is a situation which potentially we could well face. And the thing that would, is likely to drive it really, I think, is the position of the dollar. Uh, this meeting um, uh, in Johannesburg for BRICS and uh, people who are interested in joining BRICS, countries that are interested in, in joining BRICS, uh, has the potential, I think, to begin to undermine the dollar as a reserve currency. Now, when it does that, then it becomes more difficult for uh, uh, the US government to fund its deficit um, because foreigners will no longer be interested in maintaining large dollar positions. And um, that position is extremely large. I mean, if you look at, uh, according, and this is US Treasury tick figures, if you look at the um, bank deposits uh, uh, due to uh, foreign entities, I mean, that's something like 6 trillion, which I think is the order of what, sort of 35, 40% of total bank deposits in the US. I mean, this is a huge, huge quantity. And then on top of that, they've also got their bond investments. Um, and uh, as well as that, they've got investments in equities. And the total exposure of foreigners is in the order of 30 to $31 trillion. In other words, somewhat more than US GDP. <laughs> uh, so you can see that um, uh, if, if something just goes wrong, if you like, as far as um, the geopolitical situation of America and the dollar's hegemony, then you know this could develop into quite a rout. Um, and this is, I think, a very, very serious thing, which is not recognized very much by domestic Americans. I mean, domestic Americans, quite understandably, I mean, you know, we all do this. We think our currency is perfectly safe. We don't, can't see why there's a problem with it and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, Americans also have the experience that um, their dollar is always wanted and it is used for trade. It is used to settle everything. Everything around the world is priced in dollars. It is the international currency. Um, you know, anything which is cross-border, which is not dollar, is really pretty minor and pretty local type stuff, like one country next to another dealing between them. The dollar is so important. Now, of course, I can understand this. But from the foreigner's point of view, when you've got around about, I think it's about 14 trillion invested in uh, U.S. equities. Why have you got 14 trillion invested in U.S. equities? I mean, let's face it, it's got to be a speculative <laughs> You know, a speculative um, interest. Um, so when things turn round uh, for the for the dollar, I, it, it will start, I believe, with the foreigners. And I would say that in sterling, we've got exactly the same problem. Um, at the moment, um, you know, we see rising um, uh, interest rates, uh, and um, from a foreign point of view, you could take the view, and this is what they do at the moment, which is why sterling is held up reasonably well. Well, the yield in sterling is extremely attractive, but there will come a point when these yields begin to destabilize the UK economy, then what do the foreigners do? They sell sterling, of course they do. And here am I sitting as a Brit thinking, 
there's nothing wrong. I mean, sterling's all right. Okay, interest rates are rising and it's difficult and all the rest of it. But, you know, I mean, surely there's no reason for the foreigners to sell our currency. You know, do you, do you, do you see what I mean? It's um, There's a sort of foreign view and there's a domestic view. And the easiest thing in the world for anyone is to accept their domestic view. So I would urge Americans to just try and look at it from the foreigner's point of view. Look at the dollar from the foreigner's point of view. It might not be quite so rosy. Uh, super important. Again, one of the big reasons why I have you here on this channel. And, and just to show you how quickly you can go from absolute confidence in your system to panic, uh, we just have to look back to the guilt crisis of last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody expected that the day before, right? And then all no. of a sudden it was like, whoa, wait a minute, like our entire pension system is about to implode. Yep, yeah. right? yep. And now, um, incidentally, um, you know, that yield has just topped the yield that we saw then. You know, And is it in the headlines? Not really, but it will be, I can assure you. Uh, particularly with, um, you know, the, the, the crisis, the developing crisis in the mortgage market um, must not be underestimated. So I mean, I, I want, that was actually one of my small yeah. questions. So let's go there really quickly. So you, you, yeah. you were talking about how uh, higher rates are obviously going to be weighing mm. on over leveraged companies or highly leveraged companies. And as we're recording here, Alistair, I, I just have been running a video on Wealthy on today that's focused on the quote unquote zombie corporation risk. We had a yeah. zombie corporate analyst on who's talking about exactly this issue. But you're right. There's a whole consumer side to this, right? Which is uh, what's happening in mortgages and homes frequently are most people's largest asset. Um, and the big difference I just want to make for my American viewers here is um, the, the U.S. housing market is is kind of in a it's in sort of like a Mexican standoff right now, where sellers don't want to sell, buyers don't want to buy, transactions have plummeted, and there's a lot of debate where one of the prevailing narratives is oh, our housing market's not going to crack that much because most people have a 30-year mortgage and they're just going to wait this out. You know, as long as they don't have to sell, they can just stay with their you know cheap mortgage, right? And there's a lot of truth to that. Over in the UK, though, you guys deal in five-year mortgages mostly, right? Five years fixed, and then it basically you have to take on it either becomes variable or you go take on another five-year fixed mortgage, but of course, everything is re-rated now. So you have about 20% of your housing stock, roughly, that comes up for repricing every single year. And I imagine right now you're having people that are getting you know, massive re-rating shock. You're nodding as I'm saying this. So, so tell me what's going on there, because I feel like what's going on there is, is largely kind of a preview of what may be coming to the US and other markets. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, your description of the U.S. market, um, uh, you know, is ringing bells here because uh, in terms of prices, we're in a similar position. Um, the, the market's just sort of stopped, uh, as it were. Um, transactions are stopped. Um, a few prices have been reduced by the sellers, um, but nobody knows quite where this is going. Uh, and obviously, there's a lot of hope and so on and so forth. It reminds me very much of the public attitude in the early stages of a bear market in, in equities, you know, where, you know, the prices have fallen. I mean, should, should, we, should we buy or, um, you know, I mean, 
surely things are not nearly as bad as uh, the way prices right. have gone are indicated. Right. The, the, the first stage of the five stages of grief, right? It's denial. Right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And um, your description of the mortgage market here is 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 pretty accurate. Um, I think I'm right in saying that when mortgage rates started rising, something like 80% of um, people with mortgages had locked in uh, either one, two, three, four, or five years of fixed rates, because otherwise uh, we have floating mortgage rates. I mean, they are basically set by the banks, depending on what the money market rates are, because they take a spread, if you like, between um, their cost of financing and what they charge the mortgage, you know, the mortgage uh, mortgagee. So, um, uh, but obviously, you know, these one, two, three, four, five year fixed terms mature. And so you've got this rolling situation, which is just getting worse and worse and worse as people are finding that a mortgage which they fixed, say, for two years at um, one and three quarter percent is now costing them six percent. And, uh, you know, I mean, the prices that they paid for property when interest rates were so low were just incredibly high on any historic basis. So these mortgages are enormous. I mean, it is quite normal for an ordinary person to have a mortgage they've taken out a mortgage say on six or seven times their earnings um, and uh, they can't afford to pay it so there is a huge huge squeeze um, against these these uh, poor unfortunates um yeah, so, sorry to interrupt so we talk about the lag effect a lot here on this this channel and in the u.s the current hypothesis at least mine from talking to so many people here is that we still really haven't seen the major brunt of it yet that it takes a good long while between when the yeah. fed makes a rate hike to see it happen and, and see its full effect in the real world you guys are on an accelerated timeline because mm -hmm. of this so your lag effect is is going to be shorter than ours because people re-rate and to your point all of a sudden yeah. their mortgage has skyrocketed and they just have a lot less money to spend in the economy so your economy is going to feel it and probably the canadian one too because they have the same yeah. mortgage setup as you guys you're going to feel it faster than we so I don't want to I don't want to be too dire and I don't want to put words in your mouth but it sounds like you guys are on the precipice or maybe have already teetered off here mm. on the consumer impact from these re-rating mortgages yes I would say that um I mean I I, I do agree with you and um your comment about the Canadian market um you know the, the history of price volatility in Canadian residential pro prices particularly in places like vancouver it's just absolutely i think staggering. they've had the, the like the two worst housing bubbles in the world um yeah yeah exactly vancouver and, and toronto yeah. yeah but i think i think it's worth making the point that um uh you know even though um it's a slower burn as it were in the u.s uh, residential property market i think that um we must bear in mind that um pricing is always done on the on you know on the margin it's, exactly it's marginal effect i'm glad and, you say that just so you know i i bang that drum all the time on this channel yeah because <laughs> a lot so, of people don't quite get that yeah no 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 but it is I, the way to understand it is quite simple who is going to buy your property um what are their financial arrangements are they going to have to go and get a new mortgage but i mean the the, the point is that anyone who is buying a property has you know in, in most cases unless they're very rich um they are going to rely on mortgage finance. And if the cost of a new mortgage is high, 
then their ability to pay a higher price um, and even their desire to, to pay a higher price is just going to evaporate. Uh, it's as simple as that. So this is why at the margin, it is terribly important to understand it is the marginal interest which creates prices. And um, uh, also in, 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 in commercial property, I mean, this is, this is a, a real problem. I mean, unless you have got a really good tenant, typically a government department on a fairly long lease, um, you know, the income on your commercial property is going to go, really. And also a lot of it uh, is going to suffer, I think, from um, uh, leverage uh, from, uh, you know, sort of existing owners who have levered up their position. And, um, you know, they now find that uh, the cost of finance is exceeding um, the return on, the, on you know, the, the income return. So, you know, and private equity. Private equity is, I think, going to be a real problem, Adam, um, you know, because they've just relied, as I was saying about the Thames water situation, they just rely on gearing up what they think is a steady income stream at extremely low rates, uh, and then find that the thing has got to be refinanced when the, um, you know, when the, when the term ends. They're in exactly the same position, if you like, as a you know, as a householder with, with um, you know, with a mortgage that needs to be refixed. And this is this is what really undid Thames Water. And it's not going to be the first utility in this country getting into that sort of trouble. Well, it sounds like you see Thames Water as sort of a, a bellwether, I mean, not just for the utility industry, but for for much of corporate America. That, yeah. That, or, sorry, much of corporate uh Britain around yeah, the world but, uh, <laughs> you know, exactly but it's it's that you know this is a problem not just confined to to the UK it's um you know anywhere where they've seen uh, um, this very sharp rise in interest rates and borrowing costs and I reiterate and this is desperately important to understand the behavior of the banks obviously they're turning from greed to fear fear of losses they have to because their balance sheets have become over leveraged more highly leveraged than they've ever been before. They need to reduce the risk on their balance sheets. And that means not lending any more credit, not creating any credit, which is why you know, you're seeing that the money supply um, is stalling virtually the whole way around the Western world. So I'm curious, are the UK banks experiencing what the US banks have been, which is that in their portfolios, they're, they're underwater where they were buying, yeah. quote unquote, safe investments, which are yep. still money, good investments, but they were, you know, buying treasury bonds. And then when the Fed hiked rates, all of a sudden, on paper, at least the, the value of those bonds is now less. And so, yep. you know, they're, they're undercapitalized, or they're, they're, they're underwater in their capitalization. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a double whammy, because um, when the interest rates rise, that hits their P&L, very badly right. and at the same time it undermines the capital value of their bonds um i think i think the the uh, uh, the silicon valley uh, bank was um i mean i don't see that really being replicated very much in this country um banks here traditionally have bought gilts have bought corporate bonds but they tend to buy them with um without a long maturity profile. I mean, it tends to be at least under five years. So that does limit the volatility in the bond price on rising interest rates, rising bond yields. Um, but where I think there is a problem is likely to be in Europe, um, where so far as I can see, the, the, the major banks uh, have been ducking 
um, normal commercial lending and going into other things like derivatives, um, you know, financing the acquisition of bonds with negative interest rates from the, you know, um, in, imposed by the ECB. So I think they have probably got the, that problem, the bond problem, rather than the UK. The same problem in Japan. And that also introduces another dimension in this, and that is that while we can see these banks getting into trouble, I mean, we would expect the central banks to be central in underwriting the commercial banking system. But if you look at the balance sheets of the Fed, of um, uh, the ECB, um, and the Bank of Japan, the UK, the, the, the BOE is just slightly different. They're all horribly underwater. They're all in deep negative equity. Why? Because they ramped up the market by lowering interest rates and then bought bonds in the thing called QE right, right at the top of the market. And of course, you know, now, you know, we think we've got problems. Central banks have got a major problem. <laughs> they are so deeply underwater. It's just incredible. And we expect these guys to rescue our failing uh, financial system. Whoops, this is, I mean, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. The historians are going to have a lovely time writing about this, I can tell you. Yeah, I don't think that they have such fun gonna, living it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's going to be a very flattering accounting uh, of, of this period of time. So, okay, so um, compromise central banks, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But it sounds like, you know, most of the people that I've had on this channel, I just had a, a long discussion with Lance Roberts uh, about this in our weekend mm -hmm. uh, market recap, is the if 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 for for those that are worrying about um a systemic breakage or something that's going to cause a recession right now where because the markets have performed so strongly this year you know we're hearing lots of talk of a soft landing or perhaps even avoiding a, a recession uh entirely and you know what, what lance and a lot of these other veterans have been saying is is look the thing that's going to it's going to catch the system by surprise and, and potentially pull pull things down into a real correction is going to have to be something that impacts the credit markets, right? And you're basically yeah. saying credit markets are getting increasingly uneasy here. And we just talked about a number of factors from, um, you know, the tightening lending standards uh, that are, are bringing economic growth down, the impact of the lag effect of that on both companies and consumers. You talked about um, you know banks increasingly getting nervous here. So there's a lot of things that we just went through that are basically saying, look, the credit markets are getting increasingly worried, which means increasingly tightening. So those those implications that you've been raising here, don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you think like they're relatively inevitable here. Or let me ask you this: Can you think of anything that 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 is decently likely to happen in the next six months that could avoid? the shoes dropping that you've just laid out for us here? In, the short answer is no. Okay. <laughs> I think it's inevitable. I mean, the one thing we don't know, Adam, is timing. This is always the big, big question. And, um, you know, if you're trying to time your investments in financial securities um, through this period, um, it is extremely difficult. I mean, actually, what you should do is you see the danger and you think, well, this is actually getting quite close. We don't know whether it's going to be in the next month, next two months, next quarter, maybe the next half year. But 
it's getting increasingly unlikely that it's going to be much beyond that. So actually, what you should do is sell everything and go off on a world cruise. But, you know, that's not the way the world works. Mm-hmm. You know? And particularly for professional investment managers who are left holding the can through this for their clients. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's going to be, I think, extremely difficult for them. There is an answer um, for investors, um, and that is to protect their capital. Just just take as much as you think is sensible out of the credit system, because the whole of the financial system is a credit system. And it's the credit system that we're talking about potentially collapsing. And the way you um, you offset this risk is by getting into legal money, and that's physical gold, coin or bullion. Um, and I mean, if you look at uh, the thing that's fascinating is that I've, you know, I've just been um, uh, drawing up an article for for um, tomorrow, which will be released tomorrow, and looking at things like, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the London housing market, for example. If you look at the prices, I mean, from 1968, when uh, the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors started first started constructing an index. Uh, house prices have increased by something like 120 times. But the price in gold has gone up roughly 30%. You know, so (laughs) what does that tell you? It tells you a hell of a lot about sterling, I think. Um, And if you look at the price of oil, um, and that's a fascinating one, because if you go back to 1950, this is a favorite chart of James Turk, you go back to 1950, between 1950 and 1971, when the Bretton Woods system um, existed, the price of oil hardly moved in dollars. And it hardly moved, obviously, in gold uh, for the same reason. And that is that the dollar was fixed through the Bretton Woods system at $35 an ounce. But after 1971, I mean, it was like sort of count one, two, three, and then boom, what happened to oil prices in dollars? went through the roof. What happened to it in gold? It sort of, I think at the most extreme, it's something like doubled. That was it. Now, to a large extent, I think that's probably because of the manipulation of the gold price to try mm-hmm. and sort of get it out of the system and persuade everybody it was a pet rock or something. So, um, and I mean, I was just looking at this chart today. The price of WTI oil in gold is half what it was in 1970, half. This is interesting. While in dollars, it's at roughly 70 bucks. So this is this is the distortion that um, fiat currency introduces into everything. And part of the problem I think we have in terms of trying to assess, you know, what's going on, what do we do, how do we react? The numbers, the figures, your long-term charts are completely corrupted by the collapse in the purchasing power of the currencies. It's actually very, very hard, right? I think, for anyone to really understand where they are. I mean, what they've been doing so far is, you know, sort of running to try and keep up with the uh, loss in um, purchasing power of the dollar, sterling, euro, whatever your, your, your domestic currency is. But we're now getting to a point where the whole credit system is liable to implode. And under those circumstances, you want to get out of it. Depending how uh, much you believe this risk is there, you need to get out of it by getting into real money. And that that's hoarding gold. Um, and uh, I think the idea that um, if you hoard 
some of your wealth into gold, say, I don't know, 10, 15, 20%. I mean, look at it as an insurance policy. We really hope this doesn't happen, but it's becoming, it's beginning to look increasingly inevitable. Okay. Um, all right. This is a great transition into some of the questions I had here on my list for you when we started. We had this, but but I really appreciate the way in which we've got to this part of the conversation, Alistair. So this has been a great conversation so far. Um uh, I, I, I do want to talk a bit more about your, your views on gold. And of course, that's what you write about on a daily basis uh, for gold money. Um, very quickly, uh, when you were on this channel back in January, um, you made some some fairly large declarative statements about the future of, of, of fiat currency in general. Um, let's start first with the dollar. Um you had had thought that it was going to, or you said you could see the dollar falling pretty dramatically in value uh, through the course of 2023. Um, you weren't saying this was exactly going to happen, but you said more or less like, I wouldn't be surprised if it loses half its value this year. Um, if you compare it both to just the dollar index versus other fiat currencies, it has weakened a little bit this year, but not very much. I mean, maybe 2% or so. If you compare it to gold, um, it's again fallen just a tiny bit so far year to date. So I'm just curious. Uh, either a uh, is have you changed your outlook at all? And if you haven't, what do you think is responsible for the delay of of not seeing as big of a of a fall yet yeah. in the value of the dollar? Well, my view hasn't changed. Um, so I'll answer that question straight away. I mean, obviously, as I said earlier, the timing of these things is always the open Super question. Hard, yeah. And if you look at the chart of the trade weighted, you can see that um, you know it's sort of it's found support at just over a hundred, about a hundred point five, something like that. Um, and uh, it would be my view that if that level is broken, I think that would be a very serious signal to markets that um, the dollar has got a real problem. So um, I think that's a level to watch very, very carefully. Uh, now, having said that, um, it's bounced off that level. It's currently around 103 and change. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it bounces a bit further. Um, so, um, you know, it's. I think what I'm saying is at some stage it's going to break that level. And I think that will be a signal to foreigners. Um, you know, this is time to get out or whatever. I mean, it could be that the thing starts off with the foreigners just not buying any, any more dollars. But remember that um, the majority of the trade weighted is made up of euros on the other side, yen, um, and a few others. I mean, I think the Chinese interest is pretty low. I don't know what the weighting there is. Um, so we're also, we're not just looking at the dollar, we're looking at a race to the bottom, if you like, uh, in these currencies, which are currently losing purchasing power. I mean, this is the whole point about so-called inflation. It's not a rise in the general level of prices. It is a loss of purchasing power of the currency. So they're all suffering it. Right. And they're all uh, going uh, down. Uh, 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 sorry to interrupt, but I just want to get getting back to what you said way at the beginning of this conversation. We may see some increasing in prices uh, that could be driven by supply issues again, especially if if the war escalates, right? So so we could, in other words, have the worst of both worlds, right? As yeah. we could have we could have physical issues that are pushing that are pushing true pricing up, while at the same time, the fiat currency purchasing power is devaluing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's if if you see uh, you know specific um, prices rising, 
and other prices not rising, maybe even falling, then that's, this is less of a currency issue. Right. But when the general level of prices is rising, it is essentially a currency issue, whatever the stated reasons, you know, like um, uh, re-escalation of the Ukrainian situation, whatever it might be. And remember that uh, one of the things that's, I think, taken a little bit of the, the, the froth out of commodities is um, signs that the Chinese economy, um, you know, having sort of come out of the COVID lockdowns and recovered, that recovery, it sort of feels as if it's not really running through. Right. Sort of thing. So there is an element, I think, of this sort of trying to double guess what's going on. But um, we can be absolutely certain that the Chinese will be back in the market for commodities. I mean, for example, I don't know that this is um, necessarily a geopolitical um, act by the Chinese, but um, they're now restricting the export of um, certain rare earths right. like gallium, I think is one of them. I can't remember what the other is. Uh, and and so uh, why? You know, it's probably because they need it for themselves. I don't think they're trying to screw the rest of the world. I think it's uh, because they trade with the rest of the world. I think it is because um, they can see that they're going to need these elements. And they are very, very important. They're very important, not only in military applications, but also in vehicles and things like that. Oh, everything. So, everything from yeah, green energy to cell phones everything. and everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I think I think that... Um, you know the 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 the, the currency side um you know is is one aspect but commodities are another and i suspect that what we're seeing is we've seen this sort of dip in commodities generally which i don't think is going to last forever i can see that the commodities will go better naturally and i suspect that um the re-escalation of um the ukraine situation by president putin i think could make that happen a lot sooner um now, the timing of that is, is actually quite important, if I can just digress onto that subject slightly. Um, Putin, I think, is coming under pressure. You can see that um, you know, his, in, in his economy, initially, when uh, sanctions were um, introduced, Russia had a very substantial trade surplus. That is now diminishing. It's diminishing partly, I think, because the domestic economy is picking up and imports um, uh, are increasing, as it were, from not from us because we won't sell them anything, but you know, from anyone who will sell sell them stuff. Right. Uh, and uh, consequently, with that decline in uh, Russia's trade surplus, what we're seeing is weakness in the ruble. Uh, we're seeing bond yields. Uh, in the in the ruble beginning to rise again, and I think this is unwelcome pressure as far as the Russians are mm -hmm. concerned. So there is, I think, that from the economic side, um, uh, a reason for them to um, you know start you know start things r rolling again against to, to, to press harder militarily to get Absolutely. those strapped so, up. Yeah, so I can I can tie those two things together. There is the other thing, and that is that one of the things that is very strongly rumored um, about the BRICS meeting in Johannesburg, 22nd to 24th of August, is the announcement of a new currency. Mm -hmm. uh, and this currency is expected to be gold-backed. Now, I, I would um, reserve judgment 
on that. But I feel pretty certain that there will be some sort of announcement about a new currency. I mean, everything's been going on with which, which, which points that way. I mean, lots and lots of statements, leaks. Uh, and then you see that uh, there was some sort of story about how the Argentines and the Brazilians were trying to get, to get a regional trade currency going mm -hmm. and all the rest of that. Now, that's disappeared. Um, we know that um, uh, Sergei Glaziev, who's a senior Russian economist, um, uh, advisor to Putin, uh, has been trying to design um, a new trade settlement currency for the uh, members of the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, which is uh, Belarus, it's, it's Russia, China, it's also the various stands in the middle of Asia. Um, now, that is obviously going to be extended the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, and one would guess the um, you know the work that uh, Glaziev has done will also inform the BRICS if it's not all put together into one sort of currency, one currency concept. Um, so um, I think that what will come out of that is something which is not well defined at this stage, but an announcement that 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 Glaziev's project is being extended on a far wider basis. Now, that's a very, very important thing as far as the dollar is concerned. I'll leave gold out of it for, it for the moment. But as far as the dollar is concerned, I think that will be a wake up call in the foreign exchange markets for um, anyone looking at uh, the future for the dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, and I think that uncertainty could well hit the dollar quite hard. Um, and obviously the other side of it, because in the speculative um, derivative markets, um, the players there, uh, you know, they do sort of twin trades, you know, it's buy dollar, sell gold, sell gold, buy dollar, whichever way they feel at the particular moment. And I think gold will probably get a bit on the back of that. Um, the reason for gold's weakness at the moment, I would put down to um, uh, attempts by players in that market trying to square their books. I mean, you've seen this in silver. I don't know if you've noticed, but the open interest on uh, COMEX silver contract has fallen to the lowest level for 10 years. I mean, this is um, this is extraordinary. It really is. I wouldn't say that, um, uh, you know, the hedge funds have become incredibly bearish and all the rest of it. There may be a bit more on the downside, as it were. But you can see that events are beginning to become potentially cataclysmic on this August date. So um, I think that's something we've really got to look at and uh, uh, factor into our, our, our accounts. Okay. Um, lots of potential questions about that, but but maybe I can just sum them up by saying, can we have you come back on the program after <laughs> that meeting to help sort of deconstruct for, for us whatever yeah. was announced at it? It would be very much my pleasure, Adam. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, all right. So uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet is... Um, uh, we haven't talked about, uh, you've given a number of reasons why gold, and it makes sense to, to have some percent of your portfolio in real money, which I know you think gold is the, the best manifestation of, and, and we'll talk about silver a little bit too. Um, uh, and you, you've given us a bunch of, of uh, both sort of monetary and economic and geopolitical reasons why it makes sense to be particularly considering that right now. One thing we haven't really talked about yet, though, is, is the central banks, your pr predicted response of the central banks to the, these, this, this credit worsening and, and what could happen if something really breaks there. I'm guessing you think that they're going to revert to the playbook that they know, which is that they'll just 
do a lot more stimulating. Um, do you think that? Yes, I do. Uh, they've, they've got a problem because they've lost control over interest rates. I mean, to put it bluntly, um, it's no longer under their control. Uh, and as um, problems mount, um, uh, you know, in, in the in the underlying economy, as we've described, the effect of interest rates on over leveraged businesses, um, and also on the banks, um, you know, who um, have to shoulder the losses, um, you know, if uh, these very very big companies like Thames Water are not rescued somehow, they're going to be huge great losses for the banks. Um, banks are going to get into difficulties um, because they're extremely highly leveraged. Um, and if you look at the share prices of the uh, global systemically important banks in the Eurozone and also in Japan, you see that, and particularly in the Eurozone, you see that um, they're trading way under book value. I mean, we're talking about 30% of book value sort of figure, 30, 40% of book value. So the market is saying that, you know, Houston, we've got a problem <laughs> sort, of, sort of thing. Um, so, that, I mean, the banking system will have to be rescued on higher interest rates. I would take that as a given. The problem is, how do you do it? Um, it is relatively easy to rescue or to underwrite the system, as we saw with the Fed's action with the Lehman crisis. You know, they can basically chuck money at the problem until the problem goes away. Um, but what this involves uh, is um, a massive expansion and a massive commitment to um, uh, credit inflation uh, just to stabilize the situation. And under those circumstances, I think that uh, we will see uh, markets react by um, uh, uh, undermining the purchasing power of currencies and uh, at the same time reflecting this in a higher gold price. Um, but that's not the only problem. As I said earlier, um, the central banks themselves are deeply into negative equity. And um, uh, the only bank which was sensible in this was the Bank of England under Lord King, who uh, got a commitment out of the Treasury to underwrite any losses that might arise from QE. So that all the QE is actually put in a special purpose vehicle, which the auditors can sign off as, you know, it's in there at par value, boom, because it's all guaranteed by the Treasury. So, you know, but so far as I'm aware, no other central bank has actually done this. Now, just imagine the problem that arises with the ECB. The ECB's shareholders are the other national central banks. We have had literally in the last two weeks statements coming out of Germany that the Bundesbank has losses on its balance sheet well in excess of its equity because of the German bonds that it's it's been forced to buy under the um, uh, the various uh, QE programs uh, of the ECB. It has also got um, it is owed by the Target Two system about 1.2 trillion euros. I mean, it's a mess. And how, but how do you sort it out? I mean, basically, it's quite easy to recapitalize the central bank. And basically, um, the way it works is uh, central bank makes a loan to the shareholder. So that's an asset on one side of its balance sheet. And it comes back in not as a deposit, but it comes back in as equity. Voila, you've recapitalized mm -hmm. your central bank. It's very, very easy. But how do you do this with a central bank that is owned by a multitude of national central banks. These banks will have to go, in most cases, to their politicians to get permission to do it. 
Now, can you imagine in the, um, uh, you know, in the German parliament, um, you know, these ignorant politicians trying to grapple with the concept that um, there are these huge great losses, which are now on the balance sheet of uh, the Bundesbank, the Bundesbank is owed 1.2 trillion euros through the Target 2 system. And the Bundesbank is asking not only to recapitalize itself, but for extra funds so that it can recapitalize the ECB. You know, come on. How is this going to work? It is they have set up um, a system which is almost designed to fail at the first hurdle, the first real hurdle of difficulty. And I'm afraid that's going to happen. I think the euro could well get wiped out by this. In fact, I can't see how the euro can survive this coming credit crunch. It is a very serious issue. Now, on that basis, you could say that the <laughs> the um, uh, uh, the the dollar's trade weighted would go through the roof. But you know, this is not good news. <laughs> it really isn't. I mean, the dollar the dollar could also sort of go down with it, but at a less rapid rate. Right. Because and of course, you're, you're talking there about relative values of different fiat yeah. currencies, but yeah. they could all be falling together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just some are falling at faster rates than, than the other. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so to get to get back to the spirit of, of my question, which I which I think you tackled there nicely, is whatever happens from here, however, if this devolves along the, the way in which you think it, it may, um, how, whatever specific path it takes, it ends up in, in much diminished purchasing power of the underlying fiat currencies. Yes, exactly that. Exactly that. And um, I would love to see a way out of it. Um, I would love to see um, the ability to kick down the can down the road um, one more time. But I think it's sort of getting to the end of that game. And um, I think if you can grasp that, I think you have to look at the positive side of it and, and, and sort of think, well, you know, the whole situation is so rotten, it's actually impossible to plan our lives while such a rotten system exists. One of the um, possible benefits of um, a collapse of the current system is a new system which will allow us to um, progress our lives again. Um, now, I don't think it's going to be an easy transition, I have to say, and at my advanced age, <laughs> you know, I doubt whether... <laughs> whether I could really benefit from it. But, um, you know, we've got children and all the rest of it, I'm sure you have as well, um, mm -hmm. and relatives, who, you know, who've got to survive in this in this world. And um, I think it's terribly important for them that um, whatever comes out of this crisis um, allows them to, um, if you like, um, uh, live, make a good living, um, progress themselves, which is really what humans want to do, Though I have to say, there's an awful lot of humans in the, in 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 Britain who sociologically don't seem to want to progress themselves at all. But you, you know, you get the point that we're all in this sort of stasis. And um, actually, the what you were saying about the U.S. residential property market, how that's now in a set of stasis, is almost a metaphor for the whole economy, for the whole global economy, or the Western side of it, anyway. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. So I believe it was one of your fellow countrymen, I believe it was Churchill, who said something like, in a crisis, the solutions that get implemented are the ones that are already on the table. And so, um, you know, that, that sort of one underscores the importance of trying to get new solutions on the table in advance of a crisis. But, but let, let's assume what you say 
happens in, in, the, in the worst way that you can imagine it, right? Presumably, at some point, they would go back to the table and say, okay, look, what do we do here? Do we do we come up with a new fiat currency? Maybe one that's, you know, a CBDC type thing. So they, they try to resuscitate a new fiat regime. Do they say, look, we used to be on a gold-backed currency and it maybe wasn't perfect, but it worked a lot better than this one that just died on us. So let's go back to what we had there. Or potentially, do we look at something new like a blockchain-based currency solution? Do you have an opinion one way or the other? Yeah, I have very strong opinions, actually. Our interview with Alistair will continue over in part two, which will be released on this channel tomorrow as soon as we're finished editing it. To be notified when it comes out, subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking on the subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. And be sure to hit the like button too while you're down there. And finally, if the challenges that Alistair has detailed in this interview have you feeling a little vulnerable about the prospects for your wealth, then consider scheduling a free, no-strings-attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your wealth, keeping in mind the trends, risks, and opportunities Alistair has mentioned here. Just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you next in part two of our interview with Alistair McLeod.